at about the 14,000 foot level, as we mentioned last week. In Turkey, around Armenia, something has been spotted in the mountains of Ararat that has caused search for the last, actually interest for the last hundreds of years and research in the last several decades. We went into it more in depth last week, so we're not going to rehash it all. Suffice it to say, Noah was on that boat for 371 days. We begin uh, the dating of it back in chapter 7, in verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, on that day all the foundations of the great deep were broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened. And then over in eight, chapter 8, verse 13, which we'll read tonight, it came to pass in the 601st year, in the first month, in the first day of the month, that the waters were dried up from the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark, and looked, and indeed the surface of the ground was dry. The measurement is according to the days of the life of Noah. At this point, that's how dating is being taken place. It will change later on as the monarchy is developed in Israel and they start dating by kings. 371 days. On a boat with three decks, with the largest estimation being 79,000 animals. 450 feet long, 75 feet wide by 40 five feet deep was the measurements of that boat. With all of those animals, and you can just think about the complications, the food you'd have to bring aboard, the elimination of waste on board, I'm sure that ark after 371 days got really old and smelly. And God was gracious to command Noah to build a window all the way around the top of the ark. I don't know what deck he was on, perhaps the Lanai deck, a little more plush than the rest, out of the way of the animals, but uh, it was a long boat ride. We mentioned last week the whole idea of the flood, which is in opposition to modern thinking. Many people disregard it. Those people who believe uh, in uniformitarianism and yet read their Bibles, try to mesh the two systems together. You cannot. Peter predicted that in the end times, rather than believing in catastrophic events like creation, like the flood, and so on, that men would disregard the flood and say that all things continue as they were from the beginning and there would be that push toward uniformitarianism. We mentioned last week that there are catastrophic geologists and scientists who disregard uniformitarianism, and we gave you several quotes, that there was indeed a flood. And it seems, from reading the text, as we read here, uh, like verse 17 of chapter 7, that it was a universal flood. It wasn't a swimming pool that overflooded, uh, or a, a local flood, but that it covered all of the mountains of the earth, and the ark was lifted up, and perhaps today sits at about the 14,000 foot level atop Mount Ararat. The flood was a judgment of sin upon the world because we read that God looked at the hearts of men and saw that the thoughts and the intentions of man were only evil continually. So it was a judgment upon the earth. The only safe place was in the ark and God spared Noah and his family and lifted them up above the earth. Though he judged them, you might think, well, now sin is gone. It's eradicated, right? Wrong. Man is man, and the old nature is the old nature. And because of Adam's sin, Paul said, sin entered the world through one man's disobedience. Thus, death spread and sin spread, death because of sin, to all men, for all have sinned. And so because sin is universal, it's not due to some external source, it's not due to your environment, it's because you and I are born in this world as sinful creatures. It's carried through the genetic structure from person to person, generation to generation. And after the flood, though there is only Noah 
we see sin cropping up again. And we're going to see it even in Noah and the immediate family as we get into chapter 9. In chapter 10, in chapter 11, and it only gets worse from there. So sin is still in the world, but God has judged the world that rejected God and mocked Noah. Noah was considered to be a righteous man. He was different. In the midst of a world that was sex-ridden, that had thrown out their traditional family, as we read last week, a violent generation, one whose thinking was given over completely to the things of this world, how they might gratify the fleshly desires, Noah stood out. He was a just man. And in uh, chapter 6 of verse 9, we commented that Noah walked with God. I heard that Albert Einstein, who really, because of his invention, was the father of the nuclear bomb, he was worried about the repercussions of what his inventions would produce. He thought, boy, if man could unleash this power, he could annihilate himself. And so he wrote a letter, I hear, to Sigmund Freud. I mean Freud. It was a Freudian slip. <laughs> and he asked Siggy if he thought man was capable of avoiding war using nuclear capabilities. Is it within man to avoid the deep propensity to warfare? And Sigmund Freud said, no, I do not think that it is possible. Of course, he said it, I do not think it is possible. Because he knew that man was a fallen creature, though he did not attribute it to sin. He knew the propensity within man. And we see it after the flood that these things happen. Now, chapter 8 is after the flood, after the judgment. It's a time of new beginning. And it's interesting, actually, in the scripture, though, uh, the people who wrote the chapters and the verses assigning them numbers were not inspired of God. The people who wrote the Bible were uh, the carriers of God's revelation, but the people who wrote 8 and 9 and 1, 2, 3 were not inspired. In other words, the original documents had no numbers. It was just back-to-back, -back, solid. There were no chapter breaks. But yet it is interesting that the new beginning after the flood begins in chapter 8. I just find it interesting. You see in the scripture often that 8 is a symbolic number of new beginning. Six seems to be the number of man. Seven, the number of completion, as we read about in the book of Revelation and Daniel. Eight is a new beginning, just like there's seven colors in a rainbow, seven days in a week, seven notes on a scale. Eight is the new beginning. goes back to number one. Then God remembered Noah and every living thing. Now, it doesn't mean that God forgot about Noah. It wasn't like, oh, that's right, I've got that guy down there in the boat. I forgot all about it. I'm off worrying about Martin. No. You've got to keep something in mind that man in his language is limited. We are finite. God is infinite. Our language, especially, I might say, the, the English language, is limited in its capability to describe, to describe well. We reach a limit. Thus, how is a finite creature going to describe that which is infinite? The answer? Anthropomorphisms. That is, using human language to describe something that is out of the human realm. How do you describe God, which is infinite? Well, you have to, in order for us to understand, put God in human terms. So we speak about the eyes of the Lord going fro, to and fro throughout the entire earth. Does that mean God is standing up there going like this with His eyes? No, but that's how we understand Him. The hand of the Lord is upon the righteous. It talks about the wings of the Almighty. It doesn't mean that God has wings that He flaps or human arms or human eyes. God is spirit, Jesus said, and those who worship Him worship Him in spirit and in truth. But we are so limited in our language, thus we will describe God in human terms. Paul spoke about being caught up into the third heaven and hearing indescribable words unlawful for a man to utter. Indescribable. How do you describe heaven? Paul said, it's unlawful, man. The stuff that I heard, the stuff that was going on, I could not even describe in human terms. It's unlawful to utter. How do you describe a sunset? Adequately. I mean, some of these breathtaking New Mexico sunsets, how do you describe them? You run out of words. 
How do you describe a sunrise on Maui? It's tough to describe. You just have to experience it. So God remembered, that is, he bestowed his favor upon Noah. He's going to act in a way that would cause God's favor to shine upon Noah. That's basically the idea here. And every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind to pass over the earth, and the waters assuaged, subsided. The fountains of the deep, which we discussed last week, those plates and springs under the ocean around the earth that were uh, let loose during the flood, stopped, and the rain from heaven was restrained. The waters receded continually from the earth. At the end of the 150 days, the waters decreased. Then the ark rested in the seventh month, the seventeenth day of the month, on the mountains of Ararat. It's interesting you notice in this verse and others the ideas of days and months. The month in the Old Testament seems to be, in fact, it is indeed, 360 days. That's not, not the month. 30 days, 12 months of 30 days, a 360-day year. The Egyptian calendar, the ancient Egyptian calendar, the Incan calendars, the ancient Hebrew calendars, the Babylonian calendars around the world would date themselves by 360-day years. Yet, what's interesting is today we don't have 360-day years. We have 365 days that we measure the Earth's rotation in its orbit around the sun. 365 days, 9 hours, I don't know how many minutes, but 365 in the third days. The question is, how do we account for the difference? Um, there's been several ideas about this. Emmanuel Vilikovsky, being one of them, suggests that there was a time in history when the change took place, when the planet Venus had its near swift passing by the planet Earth, and he dates it. He goes through all of this research and dates it at a time of the plagues of Egypt, and that when it it, it, later on, in the long day of Joshua, when the sun stood still, Vilikovsky suggests that the near flyby of the planet Venus as it came into orbit in the planetary system around the sun, it was at that time that there was a shift that took place in the orbit of the earth, causing catastrophic events like the falling of hailstones from the sky in the book of Joshua and so forth. He has some wild ideas. It's sort of interesting. And the waters decrease continually until the tenth month. Oh, by the way, as you read prophecy and you see predictive prophecy, especially Daniel chapter 9, the 70 weeks prophecy, it is all based upon a 360-day year, not a 365 and a third. So if you try to compute prophecy in terms of our Julian calendar, you're going to have a tough time. Do it with 360 days, you'll be all right. The tops of the mountains were seen, and so it came to pass at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made, and he probably went, <laughs> I've been waiting for that. And he sent out a raven which kept going to and fro until the waters dried up from the earth. Now, what kind of a world did Noah see when he opened up the ark? What was it that he saw? Well, obviously it was wet. There was a lot more mo moisture and humidity, perhaps. However, because it seems that this moisture blanket, perhaps of ice crystals suspended in the atmosphere before the flood which watered the earth and kept the earth at an even temperature, a universal greenhouse kind of an effect. There wasn't very much wind. There was, might have been a nice breeze. The temperature was pretty much the same. There were no deserts. It was green and tropical and lush. The age of man, of course, we discovered a few weeks ago because of this blanket, uh, was greatly increased because the filtration of the harsh rays that caused the aging process. But now this is eliminated. The waters no doubt caused the oceans to be much more extensive than they were before the flood. And probably there was a shift in the earth where these plates, as they were adjusting, and the water that was receding, the, the mountain ranges thrust upward. 
And there were great thrust faults geologically around the world. Uh, Vilikovsky and other scientists point to people like uh, South America, the Incas, and uh, how that some of the villages, the ancient ruins show that they raised corn in ancient times. Now they're at a level too high for corn to even grow. So there's this incredible movement of the earth, an adjustment of the earth. Some will even suggest that that is when the earth tilted on its axis, off-center, 23 and a third degrees, giving us the seasons, whereas before there weren't seasons with that shroud around the earth. But now the tilt causing the seasons, the 23 and a third degrees, and uh, of course with the seasons come the winds. It talks here about the winds. When you have ice caps on either end, you have a hot spot in the middle with the equator, you, cause, you have a hot and a cold, you have pressure buildup, and you're going to create a storm system and winds, and God used them to dry out the earth, but uh, now you're going to have differences in temperatures. Now we read in verse 7 that he sent out a raven, which kept going to and fro until the waters dried up from the earth. He also sent out from himself a dove to see if the waters had abated from the face of the ground, but the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot. She returned, to the, returned into the ark to him, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. And so he put out his hand and took her and drew her into the ark to himself. And he waited yet another seven days, and again he sent the dove out from the ark. Then the dove came to him in the evening, and behold, a freshly plucked olive leaf was in her mouth, and no one knew that the waters had abated from the earth. He sent out two birds, a raven, which Levitically, later on, we'll discover is an unclean bird because it feeds on carrion, corpses, and a dove, which was considered by the Hebrews a clean animal, feeding on plant life. He sent out both. One found a feast. The raven went out, and it was like the millennium to him. He thought, this is great. Look at all these dead carcasses floating around. I mean, you'd find a bloated dead elephant floating around. You could stay there for weeks. He never returned to the ark. He found a home in a judged world, in a condemned world. The dove did not find a resting place as a clean animal for the sole of its foot, but returned back to the place of safety, the ark. I think we have a beautiful analogy of something we find is true not only in the New Testament but in your very life. You have not only an old nature but a new nature. Or let me rephrase that. You not only have a new nature implanted in you by the Spirit of God but you have an old nature which loves the things of this world. Your old nature is like that raven. The old nature is drawn toward the things of this world. It finds a resting place, a home in the pleasures and in the lusts of the flesh. The new nature implanted in you by God, as Peter says, we have been, become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Your new nature feeds on the things of the Spirit and is not satisfied with the world. It craves fellowship with God. It craves intimacy with Christ, the ark being a type of Christ. At the same time, the raven and the dove were in the ark together, a clean and an unclean animal, even as within you is the old and the new nature existing side by side, though not peacefully. For Paul the Apostle said that there's a great war going on inside of us. The flesh wars against the spirit. The spirit wars against the flesh. And Paul described his own civil war. He said, the things that I know I shouldn't do, I find myself doing. And the things that I want to do, I don't do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? He discovered what you discover as a believer. That though you come to Christ, you still have an old nature that loves the dead carcasses of the things of this world. It's drawn toward the things of this world. But the new nature needs constantly to be nourished in the things of the Spirit. And it finds no resting place for the sole of its foot. Which kind of bird are you principally? 
In other words, which do you yield to? You can have the mind of the spirit or the mind of the flesh, as the apostle said in the book of Romans. You can set your mind on the things of the flesh or set your mind on the things of the spirit. You'll be controlled by one or the other. He that is spiritual sets his mind, makes a deliberate, distinct action to set his mind on the things of the spirit. Or you can be like what Paul described, a carnal believer. You might say, well, I'm not a natural man. That's true. You're saved from the things of this world. You're put into the kingdom of his dear son. But it might be that you're not a spiritual person either, as Paul described in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 and 3. He said to the Corinthians, I wanted to speak to you as spiritual people, but I couldn't. I had to speak to you as babes in Christ. You're carnal. The scripture tells us, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For the things that are in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, they are not of the Father, but of the world. And the world passes away, and the lust thereof, but whoever does the will of the Father will abide forever. And so often we find ourselves having that choice. The new nature says, it's time to get nourished, get up early. The old nature says, sleep in. Let it ring. Come on, push snooze. You say, okay, what's the big deal? I mean, grace, 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 praise the Lord. And you find God's grace. God doesn't beat you up if you neglect daily time with Him. But that old man with its messages rears its ugly head. Or it says, your new nature says, hey, it's Sunday night, time for Bible study. The, new, the old nature says, no, man, there's a great TV show on tonight. And it's so easy to be drawn to it. Well, the dove came in verse 11 in the evening, and behold, after he sent it out a few times, this time it came back, behold, a freshly plucked olive leaf was in her mouth, and Noah knew that the waters had abated from the earth. It's interesting because it was a detector of the elevation at which the water was subsiding to. Olive trees do not grow at high elevations, only in lower elevations, Mediterranean climates. They don't even grow really here in New Mexico like they grow over in uh, California or in the Middle East. And so he knew at that time, by seeing that olive branch, that that water was getting awfully low. It was time to get out of the ark. So we waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove, which did not return again to him anymore. So he knew that now the dove had found a resting place in the new world. And it came to pass in the 600th and first year, in the first month, in the first day of the month, that the waters were dried up from the earth, and Noah removed the covering from the ark and looked, and indeed the surface of the ground was dry. And in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dried. Now, I think this in and of itself, the fact that he was on the ark 371 days, he went through the rigmarole to find out if the waters had abated to a low level and the earth was dry, shows that this was much more than a local flood, but that it was a universal flood. As the scripture says, all of the high mountains of the earth were covered. There are several articles written as to the idea of a universal flood, not many of them in easy-to-understand terms, but there was a doctor by the name of Shelley, uh, E.J. Shelley, or uh, J.E. Shelley was his name. And he spoke about the flood being universal. In one of his articles, he says, The most striking example of this is found in the case of mammoths. These elephants are found buried in the frozen silt of the tundra in Siberia and all over the length of the continent of Asia and in north of Alaska and Canada. They are found in herds on the higher ground, not bogged in marshes, hundreds of thousands in number. He goes on to say, These elephants have been examined and found to have drowned. If they had just gotten bogged down, they would have died of starvation. The farther north one goes, the more there are, till the soil of the islands of the White Sea inside the Arctic Circle consists largely of their bones mingled with those of the saber-toothed tiger, the giant elk, the cave bear, the musk ox, and with trunks of trees and trees rooted in the soil. 
There are now no trees in these regions, the nearest being hundreds, almost thousands of miles away. The mammoth could not eat the stunted vegetation which now grows in the region, but for three months in the year, a hundred hundred square miles of which would not keep one of them alive for a month. The food in their stomachs is pine, hawthorn branches, etc. The mammoths were buried alive in the silt when the silt was soft. They and the silt were then suddenly frozen and have never been unfrozen. For they show no signs of decomposition. Mammoth ivory has been sold on the London docks for more than a thousand years. The Natural History Museum purchased a mammoth's head and tusks from the ivory store of the London docks. This head was absolutely fresh and was covered with its original fur. He goes on to show that the flood was universal, that there was a sudden freezing that took place with the ice age, the ice caps, perhaps because of the shift of the earth after the flood, causing these uh, animals remaining after the flood to be frozen in their silt. A universal flood. Verse 16, verse 15, God spoke to Noah saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds, cattle, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So God said, get out of the ark. Noah said, all right, I've been waiting for this 371 days. He probably thought, do the animals have to come? Can I just leave them behind? But he said, get them out as well. So Noah went out, his sons, his wife, and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, whatever creeps on the earth, according to their families, went out of the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Now you understand why he was commanded to take seven of every clean animal. Because he was going to sacrifice unto the Lord, a burnt offering. A burnt offering later on we see in Leviticus as the offerings are codified under the law is an offering of consecration and personal dedication to the Lord. So he's thanking God, dedicating his life. Lord, I'm yours. Thank you for saving my hide alive. I consecrate my life and my family to you. And what's interesting is now, after the flood, man's relationship to God is based upon the shedding of blood in the sacrifice of an animal, shed vicariously for man. Seems to be a pattern all the way throughout, of course, speaking of the future cross of Jesus Christ. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma, nothing like barbecued meat. I mean, seriously, think about what it smelt like being around the temple in Jerusalem as they would lay the animal and fillet it upon the altar of sacrifice in the court of the Gentiles. You get anywhere near Jerusalem. Wow, it smells so good, that sweet-smelling aroma. The Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Of course, he saw the motivation of the heart. He didn't care to say, hey, you know, I like a medium rare. But it was the attitude of the heart in worship before the Lord. And the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. Although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. In other words, I will not destroy every living thing in the same manner that I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, a day and night shall not cease. The Lord delights in worship. The Lord notices our worship, our sacrifice of praise. He smells either a sweet-smelling sacrifice or the absence thereof. He loves when His children worship. The woman of Samaria was so concerned about where and how we worship. What's the right place? Is it this mountain or is it the temple in Jerusalem. What's the right church? What's the right method? What's the right art form? She said to Jesus, you Jews worship in Jerusalem. We worship on this mountain, Mount Gerizim. Jesus said, woman, the time is coming and now is when people will neither worship in your mountain or in Jerusalem. The Father is looking for worshipers who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. God is looking at the heart. The sweet aroma comes from the condition of the heart that is before the Lord. 
That's what God is interested in tonight. We are so concerned about the art of worship, God could care less. He's concerned about the heart of worship. We're so hung up on the art. Now, does God like hymns, or should we speed it up? Now, should we have this beat, or should... Hey, the attitude of the heart is what God is concerned in. Man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. Noah was so thankful in his heart, and so God said in his heart, in response, Though the heart of man and the imagination of his heart is evil from his youth, I will not destroy every living thing in the same manner that I have done. So now we speak here in verse 22 about the seasons. Obviously now there has been a shift, either if it was there before or because of the flood and the assuaging of the water, the shifting of the plates, the thrust faults in certain places geologically. But for some reason, at some time now, there is that 23 and a third degree tilt in its axis in relationship to the sun, giving us the seasons spoken here in verse 22. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Now I just want to say that I think that the job's been done. Doesn't mean that there shouldn't be any more children, certainly, but the idea, I was raised in a situation where this scripture was used to show that it is man's responsibility to have as many children as absolutely possible while he's alive on the earth. Because the scripture says, fill the earth. It's done. It's been filled. We have an uncanny exponential growth in population these days. And we are responsible for those people upon the earth now. I love, I would love to have more children. God willing, we'll have more children. But then I also think about those needy children that need adoption, who are left and are not taken care of. And I think of the children in Africa and in blighted regions who are dying of starvation and need help. The earth is filled. As we mentioned last week, it took from the beginning of man's known history, recorded history, to the year 1850 to arrive at one billion people upon planet Earth. It took that long, but it only took from 1850 to 1930 to reach the two billion mark. From 1930 to 1960, only a short 30 years to reach three billion. 1960 to 1975, 15 years to get four billion. We're at about five and a half billion by the year 2000, perhaps 8.1 billion people will be upon planet Earth. The increase is exponential. God gave Noah this command because obviously there were unusual circumstances. There were only eight of them. <laughs> hey man, get to work. Fill the Earth. God just judged the rest of the world, their history. Be fruitful, multiply, fill, or at this point, actually it's the word replenish the Earth. Imagine what it was like for Noah to look out and gaze upon the surface of the earth. At one time, the earth was filled with people, we read. Men began to increase upon the face of the earth. Now, all of a sudden, no one's there. Imagine going out on the freeway. One day, it's just crowded full of people. You can't pass. It's, uh, you know, just jammed. Gridlock. All the lights are red. People everywhere. You go out sometime later and no one's out there. You're the only one out on the road, man. You take it down the traffic lights. You don't need them anymore. No one's out there. There's just eight cars traveling around. <laughs> it was just so unusual, these circumstances. No one was there but Noah and his family and the animals. And so God says, The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and every bird of the air, and all that move on the earth and all the fish of the sea, they are given into your hand. Now, a different relationship is taking place between man and animal. Before the flood, God said, build a boat. The animals will come. If you build it, they will come. They came. They came volitionally. He did not have to coerce them. He did not have to dominate them. They just came. Before the flood, man was given 
herbs and vegetables to eat, not animals. He was a complete vegetarian before the flood. Now there's a shift. The relationship is different. Man is to dominate the animal world and to use the animal world for his own benefit, but not to exploit them, not to thrash them, but to use them for food and for clothing. So he says, every moving thing that lives, verse 3, shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even the green herbs. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it. From the hand of man, from the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. So now there's a different relationship. Animals are no longer friendly to man. There's uh, a difference between them. And there won't be any kind of a universal getting along until, as Isaiah predicted in chapter 35 of his prophecy, lion will lay down with the lamb when Messiah reigns in the kingdom age. But now there is a hostility. And man is to dominate, though take care of the animal kingdom. You know, I think it really is a tragedy. Though I'm not an animal rights activist in the least, man has shown himself to be quite irresponsible, almost totally killing off the whale population. The pictures of the elephants over in Kenya used simply to kill them and to take their tusks is tragic. And now we have to build game refuges and reserves because even the buffalo at one time were almost extinct in this country because of the unrestraint of man upon the animal kingdom. It needs to be protected by the government. But God did say, go for it, eat them, use them. And, uh, but God does say, you shall not eat, uh, verse 4, you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. In other words, you're to drain the animal completely. In Leviticus, God says, the life is in the blood. And so there was always the prohibition that you don't eat raw, bloody meat. You drain the meat, you cook the meat for health purposes, and also because of the fact that the life is in the blood itself. Drain the meat. It's interesting. The only prohibition, one of the only prohibitions given to the Gentile church was this one from the very beginning. You remember the Gentiles, the non-Jews, those apart from the law of Moses, the legal system, were coming into the faith in the early church. And this excited some of the people outside of Jerusalem. They thought, Look at this, the Gentiles are coming to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Well. The people down in Jerusalem found out about it. The Judaizers who wanted to put these legalistic restraints upon the early church. And they said, unless these Gentiles are circumcised and keep the laws of Moses, they cannot be saved. And they have a huge debate in Acts chapter 15 about how can we welcome a Gentile, an outsider, who believes in our Messiah into the faith. So they argue back and forth. Finally, Peter is a little bit righteously indignant. And he stands up and he goes, Now hold on, pal. Why will you lay upon the Gentiles a yoke that neither our fathers nor we were ever able to bear? We conclude that God accepts a man completely by faith, Peter said, apart from the keeping of the law. And so James, the leader of the early church, writes a letter to the Gentile believer. And he said, look, we welcome you in the faith. Keep yourselves from idols and worshiping idols, from things strangled, from blood, and from sexual immorality. If you do these things, you do well. God bless you. That's it. doesn't say, now, we want to lay on you some legalistic trip. You're really not a Christian unless you go through these little laws and rules and regulations and we're satisfied with you, and then we welcome you in. Just keep yourselves from idols, from things strangled, from blood, so that you don't offend the Jewish brethren, and from sexual immorality. Hey, you're accepted by faith. If you do these things, you'll do all right. God bless you. That was it. Let him go. Life is in the blood. And so drain it. Make sure it's uh, completely without its blood. God, verse 5, says, Surely for your life blood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it. From the hand of man, from the hand of every man's brother I will require life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, 
by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. Now we have one of the basic building blocks of human government. Man getting along with man, or the inability thereof, and what to do when man gets to the point where he completely demonstrates his disregard for God and man and commits murder. God says, life will be required for life. Let me tell you one thing this verse does not say, and it's a tragic misinterpretation of the text. It's not speaking about blood transfusions, like the Jehovah Witnesses would allude to. And it's sad that because of the religious fervor and scriptural ignorance of these groups, Many innocent lives have been lost that could be saved by a simple blood transfusion because they take this verse out of context. Now on one hand, America was appalled years ago when Jim Jones took a group of people down to Guyana and gave them Kool-Aid to drink and poisoned them to death. We thought, what a heinous crime. Now that happened all at once, but what of the countless crimes that are still being committed in the name of religion, blind religion, and a misinterpretation of a text? He's speaking of the building block, the foundation of human government. When man's life is taken, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. As for you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply it. Now, whether we like it or not, God instituted capital punishment as the basis of human government. Whether we like it or agree with it or not, or on all the ramifications thereof, that's what God instituted after the flood. And it became part of the building structure of the Mosaic economy when he gave the law to the children of Israel. However, there is a scripture that some people would say contradicts this. Thus, either God in the Old Testament is different from the God in the New Testament, or God has changed his economy with man and he doesn't require this anymore. The text, of course, is found in Matthew chapter 5, and I think we ought to look at it to get it in perspective. Matthew chapter 5, on the Sermon of the Mount, we're going to read a text that is probably the most misunderstood text in the entire Sermon on the Mount. It has been quoted over and over again by those who wish to object to a military presence and endorse complete pacifism. In fact, the Russian author Tolstoy would quote these verses saying that we must rid ourselves of a police force and a military force, and if we do that, man will get along in harmony. Sounds like a political platform of many people. Verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, give him your cloak also. Whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give, him to, give to him who asks and from him who wants to borrow. From you do not turn away. So Jesus endorses in verse 39, whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other also to him. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, there are some who will look at this text and say, aha, contradiction in the Bible. The God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament. Jesus endorses love and forgiveness, but the God of the Old Testament endorses this bloodthirsty kind of rule, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. It's not what it's saying, and that's a misinterpretation. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, and he quotes the Old Testament, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, if you read the context of the Sermon on the Mount, what's typical of Jesus' teaching style is that phrase, you have heard that it was said, but I say unto you. And he quotes a text. He doesn't change the law. He doesn't give it a new meaning different from the Old Testament at all. In fact, at the beginning of the sermon, he says, I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. What he is coming up against is the misinterpretation of the rabbis, the scribes, and the Pharisees prevalent at Jesus' time. Now, Jesus quotes Exodus and Deuteronomy, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. 
that was called, at the time of Jesus, the Lex Talionis, which meant when a crime is committed, you give out a punishment that meets the crime. No more, no less. Whatever is just, whatever is fair, you execute punishment for a crime speedily and completely. It is to be done in a civil law, or a court of civil law among the elders of the land. It's not to have a private kind of a revenge. It's called the Lex Talionis. It was done for two reasons. Number one, to deter a person from the crime. To deter a person from the crime. Back in uh, the law, let me read it to you. In the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 19. If a, um, concerning a case and witnesses in the case, and the judges shall make diligent inquiry, and indeed, if the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother, so you shall put away the evil person from among you, and those who remain shall hear and fear. And hereafter they shall not commit such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity, but life shall be for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. In other words, people will look at it, they'll be afraid to do it because they see the lex talionis. The punishment is befitting the crime. So it was, first of all, a deterrent to crime. Secondly, the lex talionis given in the Old Testament was given to limit vengeance. You see, it is man's nature to not be satisfied with justice, to, but go be above and beyond the crime that has been committed. Hey, you put out one of my eyes, I'm going to get both your eyes. You knocked out one of my teeth, buddy, the whole set of uppers is going to come out on you. <laughs> and the peoples of the ancient Near East, in fact, some of the Bedouin tribes still today, have what they call within the tribe the designated avenger of blood. If you kill my brother, I will set somebody apart who will chase you down and kill you or a member of your family so that bloodshed is done uh, to meet the crime. The avenger of the blood would sometimes go above and beyond the limit of the lex talionis and thus eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. It was to limit vengeance because uh, we're never satisfied with justice. Now, what Jesus is speaking about back in Matthew chapter 5 is that the leaders of Jesus' day were taking things out of the civil courts and taking them personally and avenging personally. Jesus is not saying, don't withstand evil. Let anything happen, man. If somebody's up, just go for it. He was talking about personal revenge, not a civil law case. That's what he was speaking about. Don't revenge yourself. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. But it doesn't mean you don't go to court. Jesus didn't stand up against or tolerate evil. He went into the temple, overturned tables, whipped them out, and said, this is my father's house that will be called a house of prayer. He was not a pacifist. But the idea is that the people of Jesus' time were taking these things and doing it on their own, avenging blood for blood without uh, the civil uh, courts. It was just a personal kind of a revenge. So capital punishment, instituted from the beginning, kept throughout the Old Testament, and I might add throughout the New Testament until the Romans took away the right of capital punishment from the Jews. And it would seem to me that even Paul the Apostle endorsed the death penalty with the greatest possible test himself. You remember what he said as he stood before his trial there in Caesarea? As he was before Felix and Agrippa, he said, let me tell you something. If I have committed a crime worthy of death, kill me. But they can't prove a thing against me. He was willing to lay his life on the line. If, hey, if I've done something that's worth capital punishment, go for it. There's nothing that you can prove against me in this case. God said, as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth. Multiply in it. God spoke to Noah and said, to his sons with him, saying, As for me, behold, I will establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, every beast on the earth, with you, of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. 
Thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. That's true. God promised. Every time you see that rainbow, as we're going to go on and see, it's a reminder not only that there are water crystals in the air that refract light into different colors, but it's a reminder that God has set that as a sign in the sky that says God will never flood the earth again. He will destroy the earth again by fire, the dissolving of the atoms, but never again by a flood. Now that doesn't mean there won't be a local flood. We know that there are many of them, but there will never be again a universal flood as God predicted. God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud and it shall be for a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. You're going to see now, throughout the scripture, that God initiates this idea of making covenants between himself and people upon the earth. He makes a covenant after the flood. And with every covenant, he gives an outward sign to display the covenant as a reminder. See the rainbow? It's a sign. God won't destroy the earth by a flood. Later on, God will give a covenant with Abraham that he will bless he and his seed. God gives to Abraham the covenant of circumcision. To the children of Israel, God gives the law. As a sign of the covenant, he gives them the Sabbath. The covenant that God establishes with us, the sign of the covenant, not the equaling of the covenant, not the power of the covenant, but the sign of the covenant that has already taken place for the Christian is baptism. That outward sign of the inward change within man. But every time God made a covenant, God signified it with a sign. And we always like to bring that out anytime we do a wedding. Because a wedding ring is the sign of a covenant between a man and a woman. Paul spoke about circumcision of the children of Israel and their covenant between God. A ring is a covenant or a sign of a covenant between a man and a woman. A man and a woman approach an altar before witnesses and they say vows. They say until death do us part. And usually in the wedding we say, can I have the rings please? And we have the rings and we exchange them. And we say these words. Take and wear this ring as a token of my love to you. For with this ring I thee wed in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This ring is not the marriage. It's a sign of a covenant. It signifies a covenant. And in our society, when you look at a left hand and you don't see a ring on it, you think, the person's not married. When you see a ring on it, you think, the person's married. It's just the sign that, that we have in our society. It's a sign of a covenant. God takes His covenants very personally and with much interest. I recommend strongly that the covenants we make between husbands and wife, we also make them very strongly. You see, that young bride will walk through the grocery store and young men will still notice how beautiful she is, even though she's married. They won't see the ring at first. They'll just go, oh, cute looking girl. But then they'll gaze at that hand and they'll see a stop sign on the fourth finger of the left hand. And I'll go, heck, she's married, she's taken. And she wears that ring to demonstrate that her love has been given over to her husband perpetually. God says, you're going to see that sign in the heavens. It will perpetually remind you of my love and the covenant that I've made with you and with all mankind that I'll never again flood the earth with water. And so we'll talk about the covenants and the signs as we go on. 
What's interesting, however, is later on in the book of Revelation, we see John recording the whole incident of the throne of God, and he says that he sees a rainbow around the throne of God, standing upon the covenant that God has made with man, still standing. Now, verse 18, the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Ham was the father of Canaan. These were three sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. And then he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders and went backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were not turned their faces were turned away and they did not see their father's nakedness. So Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. I find it interesting the close relationship between excessive wine and immodest behavior as seen in this text. They seem to go together. A person gets loose. He doesn't care about what he does or what he or she shows. There's the absence of restraint, the absence of modesty. A person gets a little tipsy, overconfident. Now, why did Noah do this? Now, some have suggested, and I don't know, I wasn't there, but some have suggested that during the time before the flood when there was that universal water canopy that surrounded the earth giving that mild climate the absence of harsh radiation that the grapes could not ferment and that after when the canopy was gone and there was the sunshine and so forth that the fermentation took place and that Noah just didn't know that this stuff would do what it did and he had too much and you know went inside of his tent and went bonkers could be. We don't know, and that's really not the issue of the text. The issue of the text is what one of his sons did. We read that Ham comes in and saw the nakedness of his father, and the Hebrew text would allude to the fact that he gazed upon him in rebellion, and he gazed upon him uh, against the wishes of his father, to rebel against his father. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, and they went backwards. They wouldn't even look upon their father's nakedness. They didn't want to spread his shame abroad, but they knew that he was naked, just went back and covered him. They respected the flesh of their father and would not gaze upon his naked body. The sin of Japheth is that he saw it, rebelled, and he told everybody. They, didn't, they wanted to keep it a secret. They didn't want to spread it around and cause the sin to you know, go to the rest of the family. And so they, wanted, they, they sought to cover it up. The other one didn't seek to cover it up, but to spread it around. I think there's a lot of hams around who gaze upon the sin of another and then they go tell others about it rather than seeking gently to cover up that person, to minister to that person, to keep it low. It's like, no, let's get it out. I have a divine commission to gossip. God has called me to be a blabber. And I want to tell you about the sin of everyone else because I'm the gospel Gestapo. <laughs> oh, we laugh about that, but it is very true in the church today. Oh, brother, I just have a burden on my heart. So-and-so sinning, and I know I shouldn't tell, but I just have a, such a burden, I've got to share it with somebody. And so they unload the burden of their heart. And then that person is so burdened hearing, he goes, oh, man, oh, I've got to go share that and unload the burden of my heart because it's just weighing me down. It's a cop-out, burden of my heart. Put a lid on it. Cover up the nakedness of your brother and sister instead of spreading it around. Jesus spoke. About the one who looks and sees the speck in his brother's life, but he's got this huge beam coming out. Hey, have you seen that speck of sawdust? Sorry, I knocked you over with the beam in my eye. Just wanted to point out that you have a little speck in your eye. The sin is the speck. Telling it to everyone else is the beam. Spreading the sin around, not being content to minister and to cover it up. 
Noah awoke, and he knew what his younger son had done, and he said, Cursed be Canaan. I want to point something out, because some cults, religious groups, want to mistakenly show that Ham is cursed, and that since Ham, from his uh, loins come the race of the Negroes, that the Negroes are cursed. Ham is not cursed here. Canaan is cursed. In Canaan, by and large, many of them were groups of Caucasians. And uh, why is Canaan cursed? Or why is, perhaps, Ham was cursed, but it's not mentioned about here. God didn't say it. Moses wrote the book of Genesis, the first five books, the Pentateuch. It was written, no doubt, and Canaan was there to encourage the children of Israel leaving Egypt, going into the land of Canaan. Hey, God has set his curse upon Canaan, and God's going to use you to overthrow their government and their country and give you the land that he promised. Cursed be Canaan, a servant of ser servants, he shall be to his brethren. Because one of Noah's sons had done this, now one of Ham's sons will be cursed. Lex talionis. The punishment befits the crime. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. So he worships the Lord even. The God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth. May he dwell in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be his servant. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years. Good old life. For the days of Noah were 950 years. Then he kicked the bucket. Now chapter 10, we'll get into next week.